Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Hey, you shareholders, it's Natalie, your host who listens to the most other podcasts. I want to tell you all about Sweet Bitter, the Sappho podcast. It's all about Sappho, who, if you do not know her, she's the OG lesbian, first known female in the European literary tradition, one of a kind, fantastic, honestly, on my list of topics to cover for this podcast, Sappho was the first person to ever write lyric poetry and In every episode of Sweet Bitter, they write and perform a song based on one of her poems. It's chef's kiss. I can't, I cannot even. All of this to say, check out the Sweet Bitter podcast. It delves into the truth and controversy of Sappho's life and her work. And honestly, the multimedia, is it multimedia if it's still all auditory? Whatever. The mix of thorough research, great hosts, expert guests, and original music has us over at Shared History crushing hard. So again, that's Sweet Bitter. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, and welcome to an episode of Shared History. Fly the history skies. Where do they take you? Where do the history skies take you? You know, just just to your dreams and, and I don't know. I got nothing for this one. Probably mostly to like major bummers. Uh, yeah, if we've learned <laughs> anything about history, it's that it, it really disappoints a lot of the time. Most, most often. But not today. Today's history will not disappoint because, you know, it's not going to be that dusty, boring history that's in uh, your history books because we have a very special guest today. We have another Chicago actor. You may know her as Nurse Trini from Chicago Med. She is an actor. She's a dancer. She's a blogger. I know her originally as a director because I had the pleasure of being directed by her. It's the one and only Marie Treadway. Yay. Hi, everybody. So excited to be here. So excited to have you, Marie. I have to ask, we ask everybody at the beginning, whenever we have them on, because we make them do homework to come on this podcast. Yeah. Um, do you actually like history or are you just, you know, doing us a real solid? No, no. I actually see the thing is with the history is like, I never liked history in school because I felt like anytime people called themselves history buffs, it was always like a bunch of dates. Like I remember all of these dates Mm -hmm. and I'm a history buff. And I I was like, I don't care. I don't care about dates. Like who cares? Mm -hmm. Or Um, if anyone's a history buff, it's like, I know every world war two battle. It's like the same thing. It's the same thing. And so I don't think I I really liked history until like just learning things for myself, like coming across something. And then my, is like a Google search of like, oh, pick up on this phrase and then Google that and then read mm-hmm. about that. And, read, and I think so that coupled with drunk history has been like <laughs> my avid like love of history has really, you know, elevated the last few years because of those two things. Drunk history, really bringing it back for everyone. Drunk history, a real renaissance of history love. 
<laughs> Some of these episodes for me, I forget I've had two, three glasses of wine and they turn into a bit of drunk history. There you go. <laughs> but if you like, when you were just like kind of throw a dart at the wall, like what's your favorite history that you kind of gravitate towards generally? Maybe not your topic today. Um, I would say like, I really love reading about like women in the past, just because, you know, everything is so white male centric. And so reading about women and their story and their history um, and through their narrative has been really, really eye-opening and interesting for me to, to read about. So I've read this really great nonfiction book, kind of broke down like several like women in history and also literary women in history. And so I've been Ooh. kind of going through, yeah, going through books um, and um, things that she's listed in that essay. So it's, it's been really great. What was the, what was the, what was the thing that you read? We love a good, we love a good recommendation. Yeah. Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. It's a newer book, but it's one of her essays is about the literary heroine and how the young girls of like every literary novel are like plucky and like inquisitive and daring and brave. And then when you get to like, you know, the teenagers and, and the young women, they're always like depressed and like fighting against so much stuff. And, and it, it's just sad how like the journey of that becomes. And then so she, then she quotes like other nonfiction books and, and um, like Gloria Steinem, Simone de Beauvoir, like mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things. So it, it was really fascinating to read. And so I've been kind of working my way through all of the, the books and all the women she listed in that essay. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's like yeah. a, it's a reading mm -hmm. that keeps on giving because it's just, you enjoyed reading it. And it yeah, then absolutely. A bunch of things. Great. Then I don't, I don't feel like we've saddled you with something you're greatly disinterested in. To bring no, up. <laughs> not at all. And then also when you, when you um, asked me, I felt like it was really great timing because, um, and that's why I chose a date in October because my topic is celebrating um, the history of this topic this month. I was like, perfect, let's do this. Well, then I'll be sure to make sure that our listeners heard that, that we were recording in October. I yes. don't think this episode will come out until later than that. But we are recording in October. So at time mm -hmm. of recording, whoop, whoop. listeners, <laughs> go back to October, wherever you were. You probably have like a hot mug of something. The leaves are changing. All right. Now our listeners are in October. October. Yes. yes. <laughs> go outside, step on some crunchy leaves, really set the mood. There you go. Listen to this podcast while you, while you specifically just walk in the side of the sidewalk that is the crunchiest <laughs> don't walk in the street even though there's a lot of leaves i'm sure in the gutter of the street i'm always afraid that there's also like a child under those leaves that is how i learned that you're not supposed to drive no one else did you guys not have that Wait, experience that somebody teach what? you in driver's ed not to Wait, drive <laughs> no that's like a thing in driver's in ed drivers, <laughs> in driver's ed i was taught not to drive in too close to the gutter, or like too close, yeah, to the curb in the leaves because there could be a child playing in the leaves. That's what they <laughs> taught us and why we were supposed to avoid that. Well, to be fair, I did my driver's education in California, so we didn't do the fall leaves, so I am <laughs> at a loss. But and I am a 30-year-old woman who no longer has a learner's permit. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> Just got my driver's license a week ago. It's oh been God. magical. Mm -hmm. I have not parked on any children in leaves. 
Yeah, be or careful. Dri- driven through them. Driven through. Them. <laughs> you never know when a pile of leaves in the middle of the street is just going to be chocked full of children. They're going to make one of those like slow children at play signs, but it's just going to be a pile of leaves instead of like the outline of the with just kid like running. a question mark on it. It's like you don't know what's in here. Yeah, yeah, nails, that makes sense. children, puppies. We don't know. That's stressful because my neighborhood leaf pickup is like you. You just rake them in a pile by the street. You never know. Just don't. You're just gonna be buttons. mortified now every time you see something. Good. I'm glad that I can create more anxiety for people in the world. That's <laughs> what I set out to do. Well, without further ado, what beautiful story do you have for us? It's Filipino American History Month in October, and being a Filipino American myself, I really wanted to talk about um, kind of the early presence of Filipinos in U.S. because it's actually earlier than one would think. Uh, Cass, when do you when when do you think? Wow, words are easy for me to say. When do you think that Filipinos started to immigrate to the United States? Man, I bet it's probably like. I bet it might be like 1700s or something. I was going to say early 1800s, but like we can prices write this. I'll go just yeah. like a little bit further. Yeah. 17, oh. like 60s. Yeah. I think it's, uh, no, not I think because I did my research. It's actually <laughs> earlier than that before even Plymouth Rock happened. Oh, wow. So the first, first Filipinos ever came in 1587 tomorrow bay california uh, yeah and they I've were been on there a, yeah <laughs> it's gorgeous over there and they were on a um spanish ship because of course spain invaded a lot of people including the philippines so those rascally um, spaniards yeah so that it's uh, i didn't even know that i didn't even know how early i knew they had been early but i didn't realize 16th century that filipino yeah um, filipino yeah that's crazy here. yeah it's also Wild, I'm so bad at like just the general history of the settling of like the colonization and settling of this continent uh, that my brain was like, wow, we were already on the West Coast. (laughs) But it's like if they came from the Philippines, that makes geographically the most sense. But I'm also in my brain like, was there anyone between them and the East? Like, was were we in the Midwest yet? We always talk about, like, in school, we study explorers, and it's always the Spaniards, like Vasco da Gama, Columbus, whatever. And then I found out, like, Chinese sailors hit the U.S. before Columbus even got there. And we, a whole set of explorers Mm -hmm. and, like, culture that no one knows about is, like, they beat Columbus. Like, everyone knows Columbus really wasn't that impressive. Vikings hit North America, not not the area that is the u.s but they had canada before columbus well before like 100 and columbus technically never set foot on the u.s mainland like just the caribbean islands so he's never he's never been here fuck that guy (laughs) over it done with him also because apparently us recording in covid times just means that i keep quoting memes that i see because i just spend a lot of time doom scrolling on my phone uh but one of my favorite one of my favorite tweets or memes is still uh that uh it's just white people colonize the entire planet searching for spices that they don't even use in their own cooking it's so true my favorite it's very true i'm like it hurts because it's true yikes 
So, so, so 
I was going to ask, so so the Filipinos who were on these Spanish ships, were they like indentured into the military? Was it, so it was like compulsory military? It was, I think it was below that. I think they were like slaves or okay. workers for Because you said that they sailors. were hopping off and like fighting. Yeah. On behalf, but, it's, yeah. but they were slaves. Yeah, pretty okay. much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. They, they, wanted to, they wanted to go away. So they established this little area and they, they were really quiet about it once they were discovered they were called as Manila men because that's, you know, Manila is the capital of the Philippines. And then mm-hmm. also Tagalas, which is, I think, comes from our native language, Tagalog. And so that's where they were called. Um, and it wasn't until somebody, a journalist from Harper's Weekly, which I had never heard of, but it made me think of Harper's Bazaar, which I'm sure it's connected some way, yeah. um, ventured into their village and experienced their, their culture and their lifestyle. And he wrote about it. Um, and he and ruined I, everything. <laughs> now everyone knows where we're at, pal. He <laughs> thought he was doing like a like a beautiful like culture piece, but really it was it was this cutting expose in the sense and, that it literally exposed them. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because it's like now you know what investigative journalism is so different. So like reading it, reading what he wrote, it's almost like a like a like a Wuthering Heights novel set in Louisiana. It's like all of this like beautiful prose, but then blasts of like Orientalism and exoticism and just like really. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting to read um, because I forget how far, like I forgot how far back that was. And then reading it, I'm like, oh man, this is before like photos, like there were like drawings and Mm -hmm. like, you know. Well, you know, like 18th century, 19th century literature, man, could those folks paint you a beautiful picture of an environment, but boy, when the second they started trying to describe another person... (laughs) they were going to get themselves in some deep water. <laughs> oh yeah, I the or, orient oriental and the orientalism like abound in that in that article and it's still it's it's still striking to me of like how bad that word is like that's a terrible word. Yeah. He didn't call them savages or anything but you know some of the words very reminiscent very triggering yeah. almost of like did you see anything for the hundred years that they're hanging out yeah. and they're in their own little colony? Do they have any relationships with like the Native Americans around that area? I didn't read anything about the Native Americans. I do know that because there was no, there were no women that came, no Filipino women. The two exceptions that I read, like one of them left right away and the other one, her husband got murdered. And she witnessed that, and so she left. So those are like the only two instances. Um, they actually ended up marrying, or I think marrying later on down the road, but like having relations with Cajun women. So there was a lot of mixed race Filipino and Cajun kids running around at that time, which to me was mind blowing. Like interracial relationships from like completely different cultures yeah. in Louisiana. Yeah. In, in the 18th century. In the 18th century. Yeah. Hey. Well, so I was thinking as soon as you said you know, there was this huge community and colonization almost like, what's the demographics in Louisiana now with like the Filipino population? I think there's still, there's still a, a community there. It's not as, I don't think it's as big as Chicago or LA because I think Filipinos in general flock to like bigger, more urban cities now. But because of a hurricane in 1915, that whole settlement is gone, decimated. Oh. So it's yeah. not even there to like go and visit. So... <clears throat> 
Okay, we've asked you like three million questions. We can like let you get back to. I just <laughs> no, no. Like, what about this? What about this? I'm sure you're going to tell us, and that it's in it's your really interesting. Already. I don't know. It was really interesting because, like I said, like I I researched it because I didn't know about my history. I I knew that you know October was Filipino American History Month, and I knew more current events, and I knew mm-hmm. I knew about the Morro Bay, like, but I had no idea about these Louisiana like Manila men. I had no idea, so it was fascinating to me. Um, it's just one of those like we always try to get like lesser known history or stuff that like you don't know about but it's usually in relation to some you know like we know about world war ii but here are these you know women who did this cool thing i have absolutely no idea about any of this like this is just like mind-blowing to me and that that is like a part of history that we just don't know about that we aren't talking about like that's crazy to me yeah and so and even even later on in louisiana around kind of the slavery times and sharecropper times of like all of that stuff there were filipino sharecroppers filipino slaves chinese sharecroppers chinese slaves and they were right along that time too so it's it's crazy just you know as a filipino american i didn't realize the presence that it's been so long. I don't know. It's still mind blowing to me. So when I, when I read about this, I was like, Oh, I, I, I need to, we need to talk about this. Yeah. Um, so their diet was mainly consisted of fish, no rice, which is like sacrilegious in Asian culture. <laughs> this is wrong. And I don't know. I don't know how they subsisted. I mean, of course, you know, seafood Philippines are, you know, thousands of islands. So that was standard, but like to, to not only flee, you know, tyrannical rule from Spain and then set up in a country that you don't know to set up in like environmental situation that you don't know. And then like not having nothing of comfort reminding you of home except fish. And that's it. It's just, I I can't even imagine. Uh, Yeah. Not exactly a, uh, an area that would be easy to grow crops in anyway. I always forget about that until I'm studying literally anything about early settlements of how jarring any part of the United States was from a crops perspective, but like marshlands, probably uh, a whole different ball game. Yeah, yeah, I Louisiana, New Orleans, yes. Like Louisiana marshlands, swampland, I don't know. <laughs> Like if I've, mm. I've probably seen it in an episode of, was it there a CSI out there at some point? CSI right. New Orleans, probably. Yeah, or that sounds really- like jazz. Oh, there was like a TV show. It was like HBO. It was set in New Orleans. What was that? Oh man, that's gonna bother me so much. All I'm thinking about is uh, the time that I told Rip that all I knew about uh, that all I knew about the Everglades I learned from Billy Madison or not Billy Madison. Uh, Water boy, and he was like, "Well, that was Louisiana." So that's right. <laughs> that's I'm like, right. Oh, well, hmm, I don't know. Bye, you. <laughs> Jokes on me. I thought I knew something, and I don't. <laughs> it happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. So that was the first set- settlement. I'm really excited to tell you the next part now because it. it's like personal, like to us and our you know relationship. But so down in um, Louisiana, so they stayed there and then some of them actually ended up fighting in the war of 1812 and took part in Andrew Jackson's army under Jean Lafitte. Isn't that uh, crazy? Everyone's, everyone's- Wait, why is that so important to you too? So Maria and I met, uh, she directed a production of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson that I was a storyteller in. And as a prop, I bought myself, like I had a book about 
Andrew Jackson that I actually then started like reading and I was like, this is, I'm doing my, I'm doing my own dramaturgy and it was a good read, but boy, what an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was the premise of like my directional, like, I want to show how much of an asshole this guy <laughs> That's my plot treatment. <laughs> partially the premise of the show. I just remember when you were in that show, Natalie, and you, like your Facebook profile picture for a while was just literally you, like, it looked like you were running and screaming and it was just the greatest picture ever. I believe that that is a photo that uh, a, a fellow podcast that we love, Pop and Bottles, used that a picture from that show and photoshopped it for the show art of the episode I was on, where instead of running around in front of the set of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, I'm running around and screaming in front of a wall of Slurpee machines. <laughs> photoshopped. <laughs> and honestly, I... I feel I feel more things about Slurpees than I do about Andrew Jackson. <laughs> more good things, at least. More good things. <laughs> more good things. Yeah. Hey, Cass. Yes, Nat? Would you say you wear your love of Iowa on your sleeve? You know what? I, I would, actually. Is it because you regularly shop at Raygun? Oh, you mean the greatest store in the universe? The most important clothing store the earth has ever seen since the early Mesozoic era? The one that started in Iowa and now has stores throughout the Midwest? Mm Mm-hmm. That's the one. Yeah, I do own a lot of Raygun products, specifically ones that brag about Iowa. So yeah, I guess I literally wear my love of Iowa on my sleeve. Cool. Just checking. Did you know that this podcast is sponsored by Raygun and that Raygun has stores in Des Moines, Chicago, Cedar Rapids, Iowa City, Kansas City, Omaha, or you can shop online at raygunsite.com? Yes. Yes, I know all of that. Of course you do. Use promo code SHARYOULATER to save on your next order. You don't need to be obsessed with Iowa to shop there and enjoy their stuff. But it never hurts. (sighs) That's raygunsite.com. Promo code SHARYOULATER. So there was a a group of them that fought in the War of 1812. Yeah. Yeah. There was a group of them that fought for, um, fought for Andrew Jackson and then also fought in the civil war, which was, it's. Which, uh, which side? Like, um, cause were they like, you know, like how a lot of slaves are like forced to fight. Yeah. You know what? The other. Because I didn't, because there were so many wars that they fought in, I didn't, I didn't look. That's really interesting. I want to, I think I need to go and figure out which side. Because I Cause feel like if it's, if they were in Louisiana, I feel like they would, they would fight for the Confederacy. Well, because that's what I was thinking, that maybe they're, they're fighting obligatory for the South, or they would have had to traveled, you know, relocated probably if they're on the North side. I did write something down where because of they fought in the civil war they were able to be that was where the first u.s filipino citizen um happened so i don't know yeah it's really interesting now that i think about it which which side did they fight for if they were granted citizenship because of it i did google i did a quick google while while y'all discussed uh they served some of them served the union cause while some enlisted with the confederates and it says with the confederates in louisiana serving in the confederate army so the, i it seems like the filipinos who were still in louisiana at that point the majority of filipino recruits during the war served in the union navy staying on the water yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of Filipino um, um, Navy and um, soldiers because of I mean, you know, not just fighting Spain, but then fighting the U.S. Eventually, getting possessed by the U.S. and then 
granting its independence. I mean, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's a long military history. There's a long military history. So, I mean, a lot of Filipinos are either veterans or current military or nurses in the military or nurses outside of the military. It's this whole cultural thing now. It's become not just part of our, you know, who, who they are as identity, but it's like, a tradition that carried down and now I can see where it's like comes from. That's so interesting. Yeah. Literally kind of purely based on location, yeah. you know, on the water and all of the invasions, colonialism, fighting for different sides, fighting for their own independence and whatnot, that they kind of had to stick to one thing a lot of time, like military, naval. Yeah. yeah. And then they, they were granted citizenship. The U S took it over. Um, in 1946, and then, you know, a few years later, took back the citizenship, but gave the Philippines and its independence, and then started limiting how many Filipinos came into the country, um, and then taking, then taking that out, and then letting Filipinos come in with something called specialty visas, H-1 visas, and that's how actually my grandfather got into the U.S. So it's, it's really interesting how to track it from there to, to now. Um, he was a really intelligent and wonderful person. Um, he was an electrician, so they brought him to Guam. And then through that, he was able to bring my dad and then me eventually, my mom. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, I was writing all that down, but now like talking about it, I'm like, man, that's like the weight of all of these like ancestors on your back and like how, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, I just got emotional thinking about it. It is. <laughs> I mean, it's true though. It's like you, there was such a tumultuous of like, even living in, you know, their own country, your own country, traveling, like there was a lot of work to get or stay wherever you were going to be. So if you're following that paper trail back, like you are seeing what your family like went through, did to get here. That's, that's heavy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it, it speaks to the, to the strength and the, the pride that Filipinos have, um, not only in our home country, but here as Filipino Americans, to say like, I'm a first generation Filipino American, or, you know, my family is first generation Filipino American, and then to kind of follow in those footsteps, you know, is, is like one of those, not a burden, but like a familiar pressure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's always there. Like, it's always part it's a part of who you are so it's always gonna kind of be in the background of of everything for yeah. you yeah yeah so i think that's it i mean that's all i have i don't know that's like that, wasn't... that was i just like i don't know i just feel like my jaw's been dropped this whole time just just like forgotten history or like buried so deep that like I can't believe that I've never heard of this. No one's talked about, even as like a footnote thing. Mm -hmm. So much of underrepresented history is oftentimes thrown in as like a footnote of like, isn't this cute and interesting? And we're like, wait, why are we not talking about this thing? Mm -hmm. I have never heard like any of that. It's bizarre to me. And it's such a old part of American history too. Yeah. I'm like, I think what the reason that I'm the most shocked that I never heard about it is that I used to be like super into the Louisiana purchase. <laughs> like, I don't know if I was super into it or if I just was like, this is an interesting thing to study, to, to do an assignment on when I had to pick a topic. 
But I just remember on multiple occasions doing assignments on Louisiana Purchase, which of course didn't happen until the 1800s. But the the hurricane that you mentioned, did you say that was in the 1900s? Yeah, 1915. Yeah. So the, this this colony is there. It's been there yeah. for 150 years. For, yeah, 100 something. Yeah. And it's it's wild to me that it wouldn't have been. I, I guess, yeah, they would have known about it for at least 50 years by the time that the Louisiana Purchase happened. So it's like, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to talk about this part of, it's like, you didn't really have the right to purchase this part because this part was not French. Right. <laughs> like this colony was firmly not French, but so I guess that's why I'm, I'm like the most, also just the fact that like a uh, hundred years of just chilling in the marshlands yeah and to subsist there yeah <sighs> what we choose to write down yeah well you know it's not a date that we can just list so <laughs> i guess it wasn't important to study right yeah i guess we're not history but i guess we're not history buffs that's the thing though they weren't just like it wasn't just like oh these people here full of, like they were thriving yeah and and despite not because of where they were which is I feel like such a you know when you hear about like hero stories like that that's something to overcome something to surmount and you know to withstand a hundred years in basically a swamp unlivable swamp and not only were they able to live there they were able to exist and 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 almost not in harmony, of course, but, you know, to not have to pay tax, not to have anybody govern them to kind of like figure it out on their own. I'm speechless. I literally have been speechless this whole time. I love this story. It also just occurred to me that for a hundred years, the reason that nobody knew that they were there was because they were self-sufficient. Like they didn't need to, uh, aside, aside from needing some women, they didn't need to like, (laughs) They didn't need to leave their, to go outside of their community for anything. They figured out how to sustain themselves, like literally with food, despite not having, being able to grow crops that they were familiar with. They don't and, need to go invade anybody. Yeah. They're like, like we're we cool. Can, we got this. Yeah. They didn't want, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't want to bother anybody. You know, they were, they were escaping their own rule. They didn't want to establish dominion over anybody else. They just wanted to live. And they did. Americans literally couldn't exist anywhere for a hundred years without everyone knowing. <laughs> Cause we're just like, like, and like colonists, European colonists that came to America, like immediately we were like, oh no, we can't grow anything. Please help us. We're helpless. We can't this, do anything. This also feels so quintessentially American. And what, when we talk about, you know, the American dream and we kind of fantasize it and we're like, well, you know, a lot of the European settlers were assholes, but we're going to make it nice and whatnot. This follows verbatim American dream. This is it. <laughs> Come to a new place. Escaping tyrannical rule. Work hard on your own. Don't invade or hurt or murder other people just come work thrive live with each like it is quintessential american what we preach all the time and yet what the history we talk about doesn't live up to right and nobody and holds you know importance to these people which you know that's if we want to 
put people to admire, put people to, to emulate, you know, <laughs> let's put, you know, let's this. talk about these kind of people and not, you know, the power hungry, like patriarchal society. <laughs> yeah. Well, and do you know what I, I mean, I was gonna say, do you know what's cool? It's not cool, but the reason that this colony kind of ended or whatever, it's not because someone came in and wiped them out. It's like literally just a freak accident of nature. Like we had a hurricane. It's, yeah. I don't know. It's just kind of nice to hear a story of not like, we did a great job and then white people came and fucked it up. It's like, <laughs> it was an accident. It was a freak of nature, literally. And then, and then white people fucked it up. And then white people fucked it up. Yeah. And, 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 and they evolved too. It's like, okay, after a while, it's like, I need, you know, we, I need rela- a relationship. I need marriage. So they went and married Cajun women, but it wasn't like, oh, well, we're going to just go home and go be with our own kind. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was just like, they evolved, which to yeah. me was amazing too is like okay we don't have rice here we're not gonna like you know try to make this our own and like bring all the rice patties here and make it like philippines number two it's like we're just gonna adapt and evolve not bring like invasive species and yeah (laughs) actually coexist with the other surrounding communities and find a way to work together on something instead of just taking something and then being like okay bye we did it all ourselves (laughs) yay um, what a what a like uplifting story. We joke all the time about how like history is depressing. Like we're gonna talk about cool people, but the situation sucked or whatever. What a great story of just like a, a community that like we should be talking about and we're not. And like they fucking did the thing. They thrived. They came over. They escaped persecution and injustice, and they lived and they thrived for 150 years. And they just got to be. Yeah. I don't know. It's nice. I love hearing it. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It makes my heart happy. Well, especially now. <laughs> Stressful ass time. Oh, I don't yeah. know. To I say don't the know. least. I don't know what you could ever be talking about that's stressful in this, the year of our Lord 2020. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, um, uh, well, that kind of like, I'm going to pivot a little bit for my story and it still, it's uplifting literally and figuratively. And going back to our intro, fly the history skies. I'm going to tell you about some moon landings. Oh. And I know what you're thinking, Natalie. We do, you know, undershared. We went and- to the moon. <laughs> That's all I think of whenever I hear moon landing. You know this. <laughs> But you're thinking, Cass, moon landing, everyone knows about that. No, I'm going to talk about before the moon landing. I'm going to talk about the NASA spacesuit seamstresses. Oh, this is some niche history that I am into. So exciting. It's just, I just love it. I feel like women from like the 50s and 60s who are just like, you know what? I just got to get shit done. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to work my ass off. Whatever. I just feel like being a woman in the 50s must have sucked. So if you did something cool, whoa, good for you. So July 20th, 1969, we landed on the moon. Before that, they were planning on spending, sending a man to space. We need a suit up, right? We need to get some armor going. And NASA went to Lytton Industries and Hamilton Standard, which were like engineering firms. And they created these like 
They looked like robots from the Jetsons. It looked like they were wearing like a suit of armor. They're bulky. They couldn't. I bet did they have like really flattering cod pieces to make their bulge really stand out? That just seems Honestly, like something. Kind of. <laughs> I said it as a bit, but I also meant it. These pictures look ridiculous. And they're like, we can't move around. We're heavy as fuck. Um, we need a different kind of material. So NASA goes to Playtex, who are known for making bras and girdles. Um, they're working with uh, elastic, very stretchy material. Playtex is associated with the International Latex Corporation or ILC Dover. ILC Dover did a lot of technical elastic stuff, whatnot, but a subsidiary? There it is. Of them was Playtex, who was making primarily garments for women. And this is also when, you know, undergarments are evolving. We're getting pointy boob bras. We're getting, you know, panties. And And this is Playtex, like, I know Playtex. Is it like Playtex tampons? Yes. So very not what we consider manly, spacey stuff. And probably not something that these misogynist men in the 60s are going to want to, I don't want a tampon on my suit. How many, ta- what, how many tampons do you need for a one-week trip to space? Will 100 be enough? <laughs> In 1967, ILC created a suit made entirely of fabric. NASA like put out a call for this contract. Make us a suit, pitch us, whatever. ILC created a suit. It was made of fabric. And they had one of their employees put it on and kind of like, cro- like they went to a high school and filmed this guy walking across a football field and he was kind of like crawling he was walking around in different ways just kind of showing the flexibility and the stability and they won the contract they're like great independent film we love it <laughs> come on board like, I l- listen stanley kubrick saw this film <laughs> he wants to use the moon landing was not fake i'm do- i'm kidding <laughs> i do not believe that the moon landing was faked it can't be because the, the earth is flat, so we can jump over to the moon easily. Obviously. You just get a big trampoline. Um, <laughs> big trampoline. <laughs> I also got hired by NASA, and they bring their seamstresses over from Playtex. The women were not initially told what they would be making, but like one- They were like, this is a really weird girdle. Exactly. <laughs> they like look at the pattern, and they're like, seems, seems excessive. <laughs> Seems excessive. Oh, ah, groan. <laughs> I love it. Um, oh, that was rough even for you. <laughs> Homer Rhyme, uh, he was the project manager um, for name. the spacesuits, and he said he chose only women because of quote unquote agility. Uh, each suit was made up of 21 layers of gossamer thin fabric sewn to a precise tolerance of 1 64th of an inch on a sewing machine your grandmother might have used. Why did he that was- whole description to me just sound like that scene in Legally Blonde where Elle Woods is like, oh, but the. Ammoniac thyglocolate? Yeah. That one? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. And it's, uh, we think of sewing as such a. I mean, it's kind of stereotyped as 
domesticated domestic like only women do it yes but the accuracy and and honestly strength they are these really really thin delicate fabrics but there's 21 layers of it and they're using sewing machines they're hand sewing some of it rhyme said we were interested in accuracy one of the women lee minner said that she would go home crying because she knew that she had to be so precise and if she wasn't like men would die uh basil hero he was an author about and he wrote the mission of a lifetime he said they probably had the most important job of all frankly neil armstrong said those spacesuits were a mini spacecraft you were one pinprick away from death if those suits failed you were done like they they had to learn like how to read blueprints how to work alongside engineers they were given insanely expensive fabric one woman was like you would think it's like five or six bucks a yard no it was three thousand dollars they were keeping this material in a safe when they weren't using it and they would like the astronauts would come in and they would have to take like one woman just did like arms and legs and then one woman just did torso and one woman just worked on gloves like gloves were her specialty she had to take molds of their hands and the you know, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin are coming in and they're fitting them. And then when they would hang the suits, you know, when they're not working on them, they would put face cards of the astronauts to like give this suit a face to keep in the back of their mind, like, this is who I'm keeping alive. This is so like, stressful. I'm stressed out reading. I heard about it and I was like, oh, this is gonna, oh, what a cool like thing. And then I'm reading it like, Oh my God, I would have quit. I would have been like, I can't do this. I'm so yeah. sorry. Everyone, NASA, people from ILC, Neil fucking Armstrong, this author, like everyone is saying like, we're not just being nice to say cool stuff about ladies. Like these women saved the moon landing. Hey Nat, what you been up to during the pandemic? Oh God, eating mostly. Oh, like cooking and eating homemade meals and stuff? <laughs> no, like ordering delicious sweet treats and cakes from ECBG Cake Studio. They make specialty cakes for all occasions. They make wedding cakes, they do custom cookies, they have all sorts of sweet treats you can order and pick up. Don't they also do online baking classes? They do. So I guess I could get more hands-on with my baked good habit. While Natalie stops salivating, you should go visit at ECBG underscore studio on Instagram and their website, ecbgstudio.com. In 1967, Apollo 1 exploded during a test. Like there was a, a spark that went off in like a contained oxygen tank and it blew everything up. Three men died and everyone was like devastated. And the NASA engineers modified everything to make things more safe. They had to redesign the suits to take out anything flammable. So these women who were already freaked out are like, great, three dudes are dead. And now we're sending the rest into space. They said that one of, Jeanne Wilson, Jeannie Wilson was 19 when she worked on the space suits. And she was talking about, she'd come from Playtex. And she said, that was production. So everything was really fast. And then I came to ILC and everything was really slow. Every time you made a stitch, it had to be inspected. It had to be checked because of the importance of what we were doing. It was time consuming. And they would say they would work all day and then they would give the material to the engineers. They would tear it, they would pull it, they would work it until it was destroyed so they could test the strength of it. They're like, we are working like 
with very expensive materials, very time consuming, very like imperative to get this right. To, just, just to destroy to it. That, and knowing that, that they're going to yeah. destroy it and I got to start over again the next day. They didn't realize how important this was and, or how kind of serious and life altering whatever this was until altering <laughs> my god i can't help myself <laughs> they didn't realize the the severity of it until they were getting you know do a stitch inspect it test it do another stitch inspect it like they were getting inspected so often and they said that if you left a pin in your spacesuit you got stuck with it like they would pull it out and they prick you with the pin if you like left something in which seems like a hostile work environment, but you know, it's, it's the sixties. There's no such thing as a not, as a non-hostile work environment in the sixties. 100%. Especially as a woman. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. (laughs) I like to be like the stress I feel like of just working at Playtex would have been enough stress just because it's something that you want to get right because thousands of women are going to be wearing it and expect it to be like better than the shit that they were wearing like a couple years ago or whatnot like the evolution the evolution of women's undergarments is a trip we should just we should do an episode just on the evolution of right on that topic 100 percent down with that 100 (laughs) percent happening so i feel like the pressure of getting the next big thing in bras quote unquote yeah is high enough and now you're like i'm sorry i have to i have to make a space suit i have to make a, <laughs> i have to make a bra for space i have to make a space bra <laughs> the <laughs> it's just hilarious to me you know with hidden figures you know this you mm-hmm. know the last couple years and then now this like nasa is like one big like feminist like working corporation right but then it's just like I'm laughing because then I'm thinking about all these like phallic missiles and like, <laughs> like men standing on the moon. It's like what mankind. I just, it's the dissonance that I'm feeling. <laughs> thinking yeah. about that all is just like mind blowing. It's like, fuck Gloria found- Steinem. Like, let's go figure out NASA. <laughs> What's happening over there? Yeah. It just seems like the perfect like feminist middle finger vagina monologues of like, <laughs> these big strong men are going up in space wearing tampons like literally the only things making it possible for this think about what the men in this situation designed the men designed the phalluses um the women designed the math who came up with the math to get them there safely <laughs> and also the suits in which to do that keep them safely. alive yeah like you literally you designed the car guys <laughs> <laughs> So Skylab, which went in, in 1973, after all the Apollo missions ended, there was a, like a, a heat shield exploded or something and they needed to repair it. And they brought in this woman, Aileen Baker, who was contracted from General Electric, Electric to refurbish this, I don't know, it was like a heat shield. It was something fabric-y. Um, and she's got a 22 foot by 24 feet put. 24 foot piece of material thin layers of aluminum and used mylar and they like they call it a parasol it looked like an umbrella and there's a picture of her with three people around her holding 
just what looks like a huge, almost slip and slide. Like it's enormous. And she's at just like a little sewing machine with four people like holding this bright orange shit around her. And she's doing, you know, minute 164th of an inch bullshit. Like just, it's, I feel like when I was reading this, I was like, oh, what a, what a cool story. And then as I read along, I'm getting like white knuckling, getting tense and I don't realize I'm doing it. And then as, as I tell you guys, I'm like, I want to impart on them how like, how like, oh my gosh, stressful this must be. I don't think I'm doing a good job. And then I, I look at you two and you're both like, oh my God. <laughs> and it's like, we know, we know for, for the Apollo 11, like sojourn to the moon, we know how that went. Like we know the ending, Yeah, but we're still like, they have these, these lives are in their hands. Did they live? Wait, we know they did. Wait, but we did know. they live? But, and uh. And so these women say that on, on July 20th, 1969, when they land on the moon, they're watching the pre-recorded video. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they're watching these guys, these guys land. And some of them are like, oh my God, like, is that, is that stitch going to hold? Like they're looking at how everything's moving of like, is it moving correctly? One of them was like, my heart was in my throat. Like they were so nervous. They were so excited. And all the astronauts, like, they knew, you know, it wasn't just like, okay, ma'am, go make an outfit for me. I'm the hero here. They were like shaking their hands. They were like thanking them. Like, you are making this possible. You are saving my life and keeping me safe up there. You are making sure that I don't look like a tea kettle in space in a giant (laughs) suit of metal armor. Exactly. These women were heroes and are heroes. And some of them became, it says some of them retired or or became seamstresses to the stars because they were so fucking good at dressmaking. They were good at high pressure. Oh my God. I was thinking that. I was thinking that as I was reading it, I was like, all right, who am I casting in this? Oh my God, this scene would be so intense. What's that? Daniel Day, it's our our BFF, DDL. What was that? Oh, uh, the Phantom Thread. Like, why did we make movie? Why did we make Phantom Thread when we could have made Space Threads? Like, I I mean, the name could have been the same, Phantom Thread. Um, just to to perfectly wrap up, put a lid on, put a pin in it, put a (laughs) put a pun on it. There was uh, a documentary that came out on BBC in. 2019 called sorry one second hey sisters so sisters oh man <laughs> it's I love a good so pun. good oh, oh my gosh so good so but you 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 did a pun on a train song come on <laughs> i didn't that's an, oh. oh no i guess like lady marmalade too yeah that's lady where marmalade i went first. i went lady marmalade oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, were you thinking like, hey, so sister? Yeah, I'm really upset that I went to train before Lady Marmalade. I will never forget. We were just talking about Louisiana. Come on. (laughs) I know. But we were also just talking about cod pieces. And I saw train live once and that had to have been stuffed. So that's all I'll say. (laughs) Natalie, just be better. Just be better. (laughs) I'd also like to state for the record, I did not pay to see train live. It was it was at the last fling in Naperville. I'm I'm editing that part out of the episode. <laughs> so that it sounds like I said, <laughs> I paid to see Train Live. Gross. Um, those are those are Maso sisters and man, 
If that's not badass. I I am in love with this episode. Uh, I am really upset that it took, that women put men on the moon, but then like Sally Ride didn't get to go into space until 1983. Um, but I just- And it was all made out of bras. Like that's, <laughs> that's the best part. That's so best good. Part. It's like, are the seamstresses at home giggling like, <sighs> John Glenn yes. is in a boosty clay. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a, it's push up. They lift and separate. <laughs> yeah. These are ultimate these... lift. Ultimate <laughs> lift. These, these spacesuits enhance your physique. <laughs> oh man. That had to have been incredibly stressful. Well, and, and so there were there were engineers separate from these women that were kind of constructing the idea of it. These women had to learn how to read blueprints in order to make those designs. I think they were also like, I am a seamstress. I know how to do this. This is what's going to work best. But the spacesuit that they created in 1967, more or less, is exactly what they're using today. Mm. Like, I'm sure there's there's different fabrics, a few modifications, but the the design, the idea, it has not changed much. Like they made a solid suit. It's classic. It's vintage. Yeah. It's timeless. <laughs> it's Chanel. <laughs> I I am now okay. So these women went through all this stress and anxiety making this revolutionary piece of clothing. This life or death piece of clothing can you imagine and then it went on to be like some of them went on to be seamstresses for the stars can you imagine if a starlet tried to tell them how to do their job or tried to like give them some feedback or or be a difficult client like can you imagine trying to trying to give a, a note to a, <laughs> somebody who made a garment that existed in the vacuum of space <laughs> she put a man on the moon i'm yeah. gonna leave the pleat all right yeah <laughs> i think she knows where to put the pleat where to put the darts oh my god i also kind of like to think of like buzz aldrin being like does this make me look fat can we just like cinch this a bit yeah <laughs> can we belt this <laughs> oh my god a nice space belt i love it revolutionary right. uh wow i i'm I'm delighted. Uh, <laughs> I'm delighted by two things that I can't believe I didn't know. I love, it's really self-serving when I am like, I love the podcast I host. And I didn't do anything tonight. I just sat back and went for a ride. So thank you guys for taking me on this beautiful ride through history. Cass, I have a question. Do you, do we have footage of the man and the person or the person in the prototype suit walking through a football field? I don't know if there's Okay, well footage. we'll for sure we'll I could try to find it. I we will we will look for it. We yes. will for sure I'm sure share the BBC doc sisters so sisters. If I can't find the video of the prototype, I'm giving you the tea kettle robot picture. Oh, I want that anyway. <laughs> um we will you can find that doc and then also uh a link probably to Trick Mirror, which Marie mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and any any visual aids that we can find for our first Filipino settlement. I doubt that they were heavily photographed since nobody knew they were there for a hundred years, but we will we will there have some weren't cameras. 
<laughs> technicality. Oh, I forgot, but I'll send you the link to um, the journalist's uh, article. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, published. And everything. Oh, I 100% so, want to read that just so that I can... Just to cringe. Just Well, just to like really love the beautiful pictures and then cringe to have it all <laughs> yeah. ruined. Yeah, it's like very w- Wuthering Heights and then all of a sudden it's like Mickey Rooney and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> and now I only want to hear Mickey Rooney read. <laughs> <laughs> oh... What oh, an yes. image. Oh, well, <sighs> speaking of images, you can find a bunch of uh, visual aids and, and the like in the doobly-doo in the show notes, but also we always post some extra goodies over on our social medias at SharedPod and at on Instagram and Twitter. And if uh, you have any, as always, if you have any questions, corrections, or suggestions, Cass, where can they shove those? Oh, you can send them on over to us in an oh, that's email. That's a lot more polite. <laughs> you can shove it over in an email at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Please email us. We're, it's COVID times. We just want to chat with people. Yeah. Uh, send us a topic you'd like us to cover or just, I don't know, say hi. Yeah. Or send us a topic that, send us a topic that you want us to cover for our, uh, our Patreon series of Little Locals, where if, if you don't know about it, if you support us on Patreon, it's Arcade Audio. It's patreon.com slash arcade audio. We do bonus episodes that are mini-sodes where we talk about the history behind maybe a street or a park or a statue that we pass all the time in Chicago and in Des Moines, but we would love to also tell some little local stories from what is local to you. So send those to us at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com as well. Marie, where can people find and support you on the internets? Uh, I think Instagram. I'm, I'm reworking my um, website. So Instagram is probably uh, the best way to find me. I post a lot of stories on there, including all my Chicago Med stuff and kind of updates. Um, Chicago I Med. Love, I love your behind the scenes stuff, Thank by the way. Thank you. I'm always like. Thank you. Look at Marie in her trailer. Well, I just know, like, I know as an actor, as a, as like a, a, a actor before like booking anything, I've always loved to like know what it was like working on a local show, how that how that would be, and then just as a, a fan of like you know TV and stuff, I was always interested. So I thought, you know, I could I could do that. I can I could do that. I love good BTS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. it's fun and um and with COVID, I've uh, my daughter introduced me to the world of TikTok. <gasps> yeah and so she's she's taught me that and so i've like found some really great like behind the scenes or like daily vlogs that were really interesting to me and then i was like i could do that um, when i'm back on med so um on instagram marie g tread t-r-e-d um on my instagram and then um and then my website will be up soon but when does, when oh, does chicago med comes back that's november, exactly what i was yeah. about to ask <laughs> chicago med comes back november 11th i'm in the season premiere episode and then um be in a couple episodes for sure after that so yay well we will all watch and support i always have to i have to watch all the chicago shows anyway because you know i have to it's required by law because natalie was born in naperville no <laughs> i i hate you so much <laughs> I hate you a lot, but while we're, since we're talking about Naperville <laughs> and also Chicago, the Chicago, uh, one Chicago universe, um, listen, what's his butt? Um, Someone from Naperville? 
Um, oh sure. God, what's the actor? He's in Chicago Fire. He was Steve the bartender, and his brain is his name is escaping me right now. Steve the bartender from uh, Grey's Anatomy. From no no second. Oh season. David David Eigenberg. David Eigenberg. Yeah, Eigenberg, I was like, yeah. oh my God, what is his name? Um, oh, David Eigenberg went to uh, he graduated yeah. from Naperville Central High School. Uh, my daughter just slipped me a note because she snuck in here. She goes, "Your TikTok info, duh." So I guess <laughs> I have to plug that. It's the same. Your your daughter or your manager? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> manager first, daughter second. Yeah. Um, it's TikTok info is the same. Marie G T R E D. You can find me on there trying to keep up with the Gen Z. Oops. Wait, I don't even know what generation she is now. Um, you want to say hi? Okay, come and say hi. Say I love hi. this so much. Say hello. 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 Oh, you know her. You know Nat. I had a lot more hair. Bloody Andrew Jackson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she had blood like dripping down all the time. Yeah. <gasps> she was the funny one. <gasps> oh, I'm going to let that go to my head. <laughs> On that, we're going to stop at a high note for me personally. <laughs> and on that note, share you later. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.